Yeah, you know, Ganesh, I always I, I think about a four part kind of structure that is across all of our civil society work as well as the work of AI. And it's this transformation of data into information, information into insight, insight into wisdom. Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. In today's episode, I speak with Vilas Dhar. Vilas is the president and trustee of the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation a 21st century philanthropy advancing artificial intelligence and data solutions to create a thriving, equitable, and sustainable future for all. Now, Vilas is an entrepreneur, technologist, and a human rights advocate with a lifelong commitment to creating a more robust and human-centric social institutions. Uh, We had an amazing discussion. We touched upon many, many different topics. And uh, beyond just AI... It's more about the impact of AI and how do you shape that? How do you point the impact in the right way to create the right impact for the society? We talked about governments. We talked about creating organizations of public trust, the role of governments and institutions, and how you can be, as a technologist, as an entrepreneur, be a part of shaping this future. Take a listen. Vilas, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today? I'm delighted to be with you. It's a nice day here in Washington and excited for our conversation. Oh, I'm so, I was so looking forward to this and I'm so grateful that we connected when we did, maybe probably a few weeks ago or like maybe a month, a couple of months ago. And uh, even that first brief conversation we had about just discussing what we're going to talk about here just got me all excited. And I have tons of questions I want to know more about. I'm sure the audience is also going to know more about. But why don't you get us started with your background, your personal journey across tech, policy, philanthropy, and AI, of course. So give us a, a flavor for, the, you know, Vilas as the person. Oh, you're super kind. Thank you. I'm excited to share. I will tell you that um, the thing that drives me every single day is we're at this critical moment in human history. And I will tell you two things about me. One is I'm an incredible optimist about what we can all build together in the world around us. And the second is I'm a very impatient person. I feel like if we can build a better world, we should be doing it every day. We should be spending our time on it. So those are the two things that you'll hear probably throughout this whole background. Um, you know, I've uh, spent my career kind of at the intersection of technology and civil society. 
how do we use these incredible opportunities of these things that we're building to make the world a better place? So um, I studied computer science. I worked on what we called artificial intelligence nearly 20 years ago. And since then have taken a path that's brought me into the world of law, into the world of business and entrepreneurship, and now into the world of philanthropy. That's, that is just amazing. And, and to, you know, talk, to, talk to us a little bit about what you do at the foundation and what is the foundation's core mission, if you will, and how is, that, you know, how is all this coming together in your journey as well? Sure. So I lead an institution called the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. And Patrick McGovern was a, kind of a giant of his time. He was one of the first people to create a technology publishing empire that said, there's incredible things happening. We should give people access to them. We take that kind of same principle and we apply it to the world today. We think about the, the possibilities of artificial intelligence and data science. And we say, how do we apply these tools to human challenges and human problems in ways that bring incredible power tools to pretty big problems mm. and put people at the center of it all to actually solve and create better outcomes? No, it's pretty awesome. You know, you, you, you call out a few things there that's, I think, very important just to double click and understand it, right? People think of artificial intelligence as the narrative that Hollywood has written for everybody. It's like Skynet and Terminator and stuff. But in effect, at the end of it, it's a tool. And then they're focusing that tool into the right, uh, you know, or a set of tools or bag of tools and focusing that to the right outcomes that you want to actually drive a more equitable view of the society. And I love what, you know, your, your, I think it was your mission statement that talks about the foundation focuses on advancing artificial intelligence and data solutions to create a thriving, equitable, sustainable future for humanity. I thought that was extremely powerful because, I mean, it, on the one hand, you see this powerful technologies like artificial intelligence, the ability to, you know, reason and understand and, and really extend our cognitive spectrum, almost like extending our uh, our consciousness, if you will, to uh, by using external sources and algorithms on one hand. What it also does is actually amplifies all the things that are good and bad about us human beings, right? So it's the importance on being equitable, being sustainable, being actually making sure that you're pointing this in the right direction becomes all the more important. Right? I, I love the way um, you put that, Ganesh. Um, and in so many ways, you took the words right out of my mouth, right? I, uh, I like science fiction as much as anybody else. And I love stories about robots and AIs that, you know, do all kinds of crazy things. But the reality of the world we're in today is very different from the Hollywood version as you described it. And you said something that I just resonate with so deeply. The idea that these tools, instead of trying to create a brand new agenda in the world, they amplify what makes us human. We haven't even begun yeah. to explore what the possibilities are. When we can use these tools to really spur and accelerate human creativity in the arts, in the creation of new, you know, sculptures and paintings and music, in ingenuity, in yes. new technical developments and industrial developments, in our ability to connect with each other, right? So much of what's happening around the metaverse and these emerging technologies driven by machine learning, there is an incredible set of opportunities ahead, but there's always a but, right? But the yeah. ownership of decisions around what that future looks like is the big thing that we need to tangle with today. When we think about an equitable future, we know many futures are possible. Many of them have AI as a big part of it. How are we gonna make sure that the benefits that are created actually accrue to all of us in ways that are fundamentally fair, that respect human dignity, that make sure that everybody who wants access to opportunity has it? No, it's it's amazing. And you know, the, the one, and, and 
my journey in AI started about a little over a decade ago. Um, and one of the things that resonated for me was like, I used to always hate doing anything that's mundane and anything that I cannot op uh, automate really frustrates me. And I was always wondering like, yeah, instead of just doing automating the simple tasks, I would rather be just honestly sitting and thinking about things, about how, you know, at an abstract level, trying to solve problems and then go apply and, and focus on that rather than doing math or doing, you know, calculations and stuff. So that was my origination is like this was if you if we really played this card right and building AI to be totally omnipresent and in fact even invisible that these intelligent agents just sit in different parts of it assisting the human beings what you're really doing like you said is amplifying the human potential amplifying the 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 human ingenuity and creativity if you will so that definitely resonated the last thing what you said on the bud side right the bud you know the challenges with this is you called out the word accountability right and i think uh, the whole note the ownership of decisions right and I think it's a very nuanced thing because people tend to think of how do you do responsible AI? Oh, just make sure you have the right tooling in place to, you know, understand bias and this thing. I'm like, no, it's bigger than that because it is still a tool that is an extension of somebody or somebody's or some organization's agenda, right? So the accountability doesn't really reside in the software piece. It's on the person who owns it, who builds it, who develops and promotes it. And that needs to be comprehended as a total framework, right? So um, I, 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 I totally agree. And I think that's what also when I did my background and research on, on the foundation and your, yourself, that really fascinated me because this is not a technology problem. This is a humanity problem aided and augmented by technology, right? Um, so, so Vilas, what is exciting in AI about you? What's happening in AI today that really captures your attention imagination? Yeah. So... You know, there's so much in what you said that I think is worth that conversation. But let me talk about excitement first, right? Um, I, I let off with this. There is all of this incredible potential out there. And I could take you through a list of 100 different applications, each of which has the ability to materially change our experience in the world. From the use of machine learning around rapid creation of mRNA vaccines, right, new drug discovery, the use of data systems to help governments. And this is one of my favorite use cases understand across a population, not just where acute health risks exist, like pandemics, but also these long-term non-communicable diseases. To say we can use machine learning to understand how we can go to a particular village or town and understand the behaviors that are leading to a higher rate of malnutrition among young children. We can do the same analysis yeah. on educational systems. We can say we can finally have granular tools that let us understand why some classrooms just underperform others and much more importantly, develop the interventions that will go and change it. So again, as we look across this broad, broad spectrum of challenges, in every single one, there's an opportunity for use. But where I think about that, one, of course, we should continue to spur the creation of these new interventions, but we also have to move out of a world of pilots and move into a world of products. Mm -hmm. And again, this is our unique positionality as a civil society institution, is when we look at all of these incredible interventions and we say, particularly in the private sector, the amount of research funding that's going into build these products, there's a great opportunity to bring those over and say, let's apply them to populations around the world that are at risk and vulnerable mm -hmm. as well. No, it's pretty awesome. And, and uh, you know, what, in, in many ways, what you've described about we want to move from pilots to products is, is, um, is, is a representation of where the overall broader AI market is, right? I mean, if you really think about it, 
um, you know, five, six, almost 10 years ago, when everybody started on this journey, organizations started doing with, hey, I'm going to do AI. It was all about just building a machine learning model to do some prediction from some set of data and then calling it done, right? And that, you know, at, at best is a pilot. And in today's world, that's even not a pilot, right? Because then you start understanding like, hey, how does this become a system that is driving a semi-automated or fully automated decision framework? And this becomes an augmentor to actually just push that through. Um, and then that's when, uh, you know, uh, now people are starting to think about saying, okay, where is the data coming from? How do I deal with that data that you're gonna use it? What kind of user experience can we actually put in play? Uh, uh, what kind of uh, uh, governance framework do I put in to actually show this? So that total totality of how does this AI or the model, which is a part of a larger ecosystem of technology stuff and humanity stuff, if you will, come together to solve a problem, that becomes more productized and, and product oriented, right? Um, yeah, you know, Ganesh, I, always, I, I think about a four part kind of structure that is across all of our civil society work as well as the work of AI. And it's this transformation of data into information, information into mm. insight, insight into wisdom. And I think you're absolutely right. Where we've been for the last 10 years is really figuring out that first part of it. How do we go from these massive sources of amorphous data and figure out how to turn them into information? The kind of thing where you can say, I can now engage with the behaviors that this data represents. That's something that yep. is incredibly important and it will itself drive massive efficiencies. But the opportunity that exists now is to go from information to insight. And as you talk oh, about decision okay. making, you know, a topic that we think about all the time, this question of how do we go from understanding how to define a problem to understanding what the characteristics of the problem are to then making the leap to saying, here are interventions that might actually allow us to address it. That's where we are today. No, it's 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 so incredible. And, and thanks for I love that framework of data to information to insight to wisdom because that's when it truly becomes uh, ingrained and integrated into the civil society and and what we do right and it truly becomes invisible then it, you know we don't we don't talk about microprocesses anymore right because it's embedded in the way how things are happening right so uh, so it's 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 fascinating and and you're right I think one thing people uh, I have a lot of entrepreneurs who come to me saying is it too late to start a company in AI and I tell them like you know, it's it's yeah, funny you ask because we're probably in the early, early beginning of a, a thousand year journey of what this can actually go and, and empower across the world. Right. And uh, and and so I think you're right. I think what has happened over the last couple of decades and definitely in the last decade where the the, the innovation has actually skyrocketed is it kind of democratized access of tools to put all these, you know, anything that we call AI with machine learning models, deep learning technology, open source code, you know, uh, research frameworks, all of that, even including big, large language models like the open AI. Um, so all of that is made it easy for people to start building with it, right? So in my view, right, from my, when I think like an entrepreneur or builder, I'm like, this is the golden time to build companies and organizations and businesses and products that has much larger impact because the building blocks are already there. You just have to figure out the recipe to solve a problem, right? Um, yeah. Fascinating. The insight there, I think, is so important, right? And I will be provocative and say to you, maybe it is too late to build most of what we call AI companies. But what I mean by that is not that we shouldn't be doing the work. But it's not really AI companies we should be building. We should be building companies that solve real problems, that use AI as one of a stack of tools. There will be a few pure AI companies, and they're absolutely necessary to advance the basic infrastructure of the field. 
but we're ready now. We have enough tools that we can actually go out and begin to build incredible things that address each of these problems at scale. No, that is that so true. So I totally agree. Now, um, let me we talk we show about AI. We talk about AI, and there's all this evolution of things like crypto, metaverse. The the, the technology spectrum has just widened so much, right? Started with just internet to you know giving access and ubiquity to now all of these other things. How can technology in general and AI in particular be a force for good yeah. in the society? I mean, what's your perspective on it? How can we shape this or point this? to actually be a force of good? Yeah, I love this question because in so many ways we look across the last 20 years and we see the incredible advances in human welfare that have been driven by technology. But they've happened in a way, I think you described it earlier, in a de facto way. People building things, letting yeah. them loose in the wild and it's happening and happening well. But we're at a point now where we could take a moment to step back from the direct and active creation of tools and say, what are we trying to design for? I think a lot about a metaphor um, that I'll share with you briefly, that we have incredible technology innovation engines in our private companies, in our government-funded research, in universities. And you think about how they do their work. And I use the analogy, they have amazing earth movers and tractors. They have cranes and steel, and they've been asked to build beautiful shining skyscrapers. And then we have the folks at the front line of meaningful human challenges, like hunger, like access to medical care, like education and economic opportunity. And if you'll permit me a little bit of poetic license, it feels like we've asked them to take a plastic shovel and a bucket and go down to the beach and build a bit of a sandcastle. Yeah. It doesn't yep. make nope. sense yet for me, right? And so to come back to your question, I think we have a moment now to say, let's make sure these tools are equitably accessible, that organizations can use them in ways that are meaningful. I think there are four key design principles that I often think about. The first one is, how do we make sure that we're building tools, not just because the tool itself makes sense, but because it's defined around a challenge, around a community that faces a problem, and that we're building tools to suit. I think of community-led design as one of the most powerful things that's come out of the last 20 years of work of thinking about how we first integrate what a community says they need. We integrate a community's technological aptitude and capacity. We integrate external innovation resources and together we build a tool that works. I'll give you an example. We work with an incredible community of folks that are operating at the front line of climate sustainability and rainforests. And their work for many years has been addressing illegal poaching or illegal logging that's happening on long held indigenous yep. Well, these folks have operated by virtue of pretty analog mechanisms for a long time. They signal to each other where activity is happening. They go in and they try to address it. They've been incredibly effective. But over the last five years, we've seen the creation of a new set of tools that bring together all of the opportunity of big data inside of global um, positioning satellites, in terms of GIS, in terms of mapping, and translate it all the way down to a tool that can be used on a, you know, not exactly the latest generation of cell phone, but a smartphone that then allows these frontline defenders to say, we don't need to know anything about the underlying data set. We just need to be able to act on the information and insight that's created because of it and go and address loggers and poachers where they are in the moment. This idea of community-led design, I think could be really powerful across Web3, across the metaverse, across AI, all of these things. Yeah. It's a start, right? It's a start of a set of digital design yeah. principles. 
I'll just briefly mention a few others, and there's four in total that we talk about all the time. We talk about the inclusion of values in design principles. Again, going back to this model of what architecture might look like, we started from building buildings, but at some point we said, we need urban planning as well. We need to make sure that there's equitable access to different kinds of mixed use zoning. We should do the same thing for technology. We should center values around privacy, around individual sovereignty and agency. And when I talk about the shoulds here, this is a, a suggestion and a normative framework for entrepreneurs, for companies building these tools, and for civil society organizations that are acting as contractors, customers, or as shared architects. We should make sure that we yeah. leverage domain knowledge. This is a big one for me. Um, we spend a lot of time working with our partners across sectors. And if you think about, and you mentioned earlier, conversational AI, the amount of experience and research and work that's held inside of those domains is incredible. Well, we work with an organization that set out to say, Google Translate or these translation engines will take us across 80 or 90 of the world's languages. But what about the thousands of ancient languages that are dead or dying? And so they set out to say, yep. let's actually capture some of these indigenous languages and begin to apply machine learning techniques to create open language around them. And now you have these incredible stories of grandparents sitting down with their grandchildren and able to convey stories that are held in these ancient languages in ways that can be translated and transcribed and brought forward to future generations. It's an incredible That's story. Incredible. And it's, when you watch it happen, you realize that there's two things at play there. One is certainly a set of human considerations around continuity of people and stories. But the second yeah. is also bringing these new ideas that are very old and ancient into a modern marketplace. And it creates opportunities again for entrepreneurs to build businesses that sit on top of this. To say, how do we ensure that these kinds of values, principles, and stories are informing the creation of new products? Yeah, I, I don't know who said this before, but I think uh, somebody somebody mentioned this comment. I, I'm, I'm maybe butchering it, but the insights for building the future is always in the past. Oh, I love you know, it. It's very true, right? There is so much depth in the in the in the richness of history that if we just look at it from now with the new tools, look at it from a new light, will open up a lot more creativity and opportunities. Absolutely. I love that. And it, it's just incredible just to capture that last point to say, how, how do we take a world that is so analog in its wisdom and use digital tools to translate it right back into human experience? It's almost like a filter yes. function, right? But by creating efficiency yeah. in the middle, we don't actually fundamentally change anything about the human experience. We just ensure its continuity and growth. No, it's it's fascinating. I love the the four points, right? And then uh, I think you, you uh, um, we did community led design, value uh, engineering, and into this thing domain knowledge. And then you were going to give me one more. And then the last one is maybe the most common sense of them all, right? How do we make sure that we're centering people and problems rather than profits yeah. and products, right? This is something that goes to the core of all of our shared work. And I hear it from my partners in the private sector all the time. I hear it from CEOs of Fortune 100 companies who lead from a people first perspective in the design and development of their, their products, their business services, their mechanisms. We need to imbue that same yep. principle into technology design as well. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And in fact, I think uh, it, this is so, um, I can draw a parallel onto, and I'm sure you can too, you're an entrepreneur yourself is for entrepreneurship and tech entrepreneurship in difference in, in particular, 
these principles still apply to just building any kind of technology, not just to benefit the civil society, right? Community-led design, as you, if you will. I think it's so incredible. And what Web3 and crypto really has taught us is that there is a lot of power in it, right? I mean, the, 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 the latest trend in building companies or projects are like community sourced designs, right? You're actually engaging them and you're building it in the open so people can contribute, they feel engaged, they actually are a part of it, everybody gets shared ownership and things like crypto and DAOs and stuff just creates the tools and the mechanism to make it work. But embracing that com community and building for community and bring that in is important. I love the way you said like value, you know, imbibing or inserting values. And I think we had rule-based systems earlier. Now with the evolution of these algorithmic things, it's important. You can't really program a rule of how the algorithm should provide a prescription or a, or a prediction of something, but you can give them a set of values and guardrails to say, make sure that when you do this prediction, before you say it, go back and check this. And I'm kind of humanizing the, the algorithm a little bit, but you know that value imbibing or in, inculcating values is so important. Domain knowledge, I think the one biggest thing I would say um, that I've noticed, and back to your earlier comment on, the first generation of AI companies was just building tools for everybody to build stuff on, right? But then the big opportunity, if you're building a company, if you're building uh, you know, AI systems, if you will, is to really get deeper into the domain. Do adapt it to the domain that you're going to solve for, because that's where the outcomes are just you know, exponential, if you will, right, compared to other things. And then lastly, the people centricity, uh, I think, you know, I can't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you, you just basically gave the, the framework or the prescription for, hey, if you're building a company, you're building a product, you're building a, you know, a project around this thing. If you just cover these four bases, you're in a really, really good spot. Right? Yeah, if we were in a poetic uh, way, we I should call it an algorithm for algorithm design, right? These are the steps that you need to go exactly. through in sequence to kind of get to validating your outcome. Exactly, exactly. I couldn't agree more. So... One question on the other side, like, you know, um, governments, right? So what is the role of governments in making this happen? And, and I also want to explore, like, you know, organizations like yourself, like not-for-profit and stuff, which is like not really government, but you're driving advocacy, you're driving tools. There's so many different things in there. But what is the role of governments in all this? And are we doing enough as a, as a, as a nation, as a, as the, as a global um, society? Yeah. It's a great question. So let me take it in reverse order. I'll share with you what we do and use that to guide a conversation about what we think governments should do, right? But we, and I think probably for your audience in particular, we're a different kind of organization. So we are first and foremost sure. a philanthropy, right? And in many ways that feels like we are an organization that allocates public capital in the form of grants. But we're quite a different philanthropy. And what I say is grant making is in our top three priorities, but it's not the top one. Really, instead of being an organization of public capital, we're an organization of public trust. And in a moment in time when these decisions are being made, we try to amplify the voices of those who are trying to step forward and say, when we make decisions about AI, we should include a broader swath of, of America and the global population. So we do that through a few mechanisms. The first, as I mentioned, is we make grants to nonprofit organizations to build and use artificial intelligence tools. And through that, we get to really understand incredible community-led efforts I mentioned some of them earlier, and I'm happy to go back and share a few more. But the second thing we do is we also realize that simply providing money and capital to organizations and saying, go and use AI, that's not where the world is today. And so we've really invested yeah. in building an internal capacity of data scientists and technologists that can actually help organizations with direct service to provide technical assistance to yeah. say, let's help you build data maturity inside of your organizations. 
there's a very clear analog, as you can tell, to our private sector advocacy as well, right? For many of the organizations out there that really want to use AI, they're not yet at the place where they can do it directly themselves. And we need to build these infrastructure pieces of support. And the third piece is we ask some fundamental questions around long-term transformation of society. When AI truly is pervasive, when the benefits of Web3 and Meta and the new technologies that will come, what does it mean for fundamental questions about civic participation, about access to economic opportunity, about rights in data and rights in sovereignty? And so the work we do is to begin to ask the question, what are the new institutions we need to create as a society in order to protect the most vulnerable, but also and equally important to make sure that we're maximizing the opportunity ahead? So I'll take that last bit. I'll I'll turn it into your question about governments. At the end of the day, we think governments are going to be the primary regulators of this space, whether they are today or not. That is going to have to be a necessary part of our shared political compact. But in order to make that happen, there are some necessary precursors, right? The first is we need to begin having a common tech vernacular in our discussions with government. I'm sure we've all seen some of the recent congressional testimony. And for technologists in particular, it's been a little bit cringy at times. So we want to invest in sharing a learning journey for policymakers, for administrators, and for technologists to actually be able to say, before we try to have the conversation about regulation, how do we have a conversation about a shared basis of technical understanding? Super important. The second part is, in terms of policy, there's no other entity that exists in the world today that can effectively do AI policy. And so we're seeing the EU attempt to promulgate some new regulations. The US is putting together a new set of advisory boards. Other governments, and we talk regularly to them, are all trying to address this question. And we think there's a real opportunity for cross-border learning around what these policies will look like. And so as a civil society organization, we're deeply involved in those conversations and trying to bring governments together. And the third bit, and we have to be quite explicit about it, is there is no funder larger than the government in terms of research and development of building these new products. And I think that we really need to come together as a society and encourage government spending on research and development for public use AI and data tools. That this shouldn't be something that's driven entirely by the private sector. That federal research and development yeah. dollars should be guiding this as well. No, I, I you know, love those that, that framework again. I know one of the things like uh, on educate the common vocabulary, I couldn't tell you. I mean, that's a, such a, I wouldn't say easy, but like something that is so tactical that we can just, you know, we have to do. It's almost an impossible thing not to do, right? Because if you don't do it, we're going to continue to see the same thing play out and on because you'll be, you're, you're creating two different parts of the society, the, the technology haves and have-nots, right? Who, who have the understanding and do not have the understanding. So that's so important. And especially if you're in government and lawmaking and policymaking, I think the good news is there's a lot of, you know, you can see even the, 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 the policymakers landscape, there's a lot of evolution, folks who actually understand or from this background are just being part of it. But, you know, we know we don't have term limits in Congress, so we still have a lot of uh, you know, folks who don't understand it. So that is amazing. I love the way you said that on, on the um, notion of the, you know, the EU, there's opportunity for cross-border learning, you know, being able to share and stuff. And if you really think about like the the work Singapore is doing is actually way more advanced in than even what you, EU is trying to do. Now, the one thing that I would say that what you, what you call that, you call it, they will play the role of a regulator, right? And it's interesting. 
can they always just can they only be the 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 you know uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna um uh, use a stick to make sure you don't do something bad or can they also be the carrot person by creating those opportunities and that's the last part which is funding and r d right um and i think you know china of course if you feel the last you know uh, almost a decade if you look at their five-year plans and 10-year plans and stuff right the r d dollars that is going into or yen that's going into ai specific research and development is just incredible and i'm sure We'll, we'll catch up and we'll actually overdo that in our, uh, our end too. But I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Uh, that's right. Process. I appreciate that. And I, I will um, I will just, I, I appreciate your nudge there. And I think that's a very fair point that we should think beyond funding to think about positive incentives, right? And how do we actually create? And so here too, and I'll just share one last thing with you. I mean, we think a lot about, and we've made significant investments in supporting a workforce and an educational journey here in the U.S., that goes through a model that I think of as digital exposure, digital um, literacy, and digital mastery. The point is, it's not just congressional folks that we should be thinking about in terms of creating a common tech language. It actually should be a part of our core educational process so that we're building a citizenry that's able to engage with these topics. And at the same time, we should be lifting up and championing those people who are using AI for meaningful social progress. And so I think you'll see a lot over the next five years of awards and bringing that kind of incredible innovation into the public space and saying these folks should be celebrities, these initiatives should be in the public eye, and we should be championing good work. That is amazing. I mean, and you're, you're, I couldn't agree more. I mean, as a, and I've always been a technologist in my life, right? Been building companies, products, you know, in within companies and building companies and so forth. And being an AI, one thing I noticed, I think it was probably late 2020s when it really hit me and you know, post COVID, all the things that are happening and everybody's just turning inward because there's, you can't go outside and turn outward. So everybody's turning inward and trying to find out. And one of the things that really, um, you know, impacted me in a, like from a, from a, uh, what I was seeing the, uh, I think it was Kathy O'Neill's book that I read that kind of gave that, you know, which is about the, the, the weapons of math destruction, which mm-hmm. talks about how you can use the data to, to lie and, you know, you can shape it and, you're automatically skewed to actually uh, exclude certain parts of the society and so forth. And I just take a step back and I looked at who was driving the AI agenda in 2020. And I was shocked. It is literally a handful of people, you know, including top researchers, top dollars, you know, and advertising budgets. I like to always joke that half of AI's research budget around the world is paid for by online shopping. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and click through rates because yeah. I mean it's Facebook's yeah. research, it's Google's research, right? So and I mean very candidly that the 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 motivation for me to actually start stories in AI was just to get that whole thing. How do you get more and more people into the fold and be a part of this process, right? And it starts by, as you said, educating themselves, being then learning about it, demystifying it for more people, you know, and then make it easily accessible for this. And one of my most, I would say. Um, the the lovely outcomes of this that I really enjoy of doing stories in AI, this podcast is um, I get a lot of young up and coming folks who are, um, you know, in college or about to graduate or going from going from high school to college, reach out and say, look, this is great. I'm, I'm learning a lot of these things because everywhere I go, I only learn the technical side of what it is, but I don't understand the impact of what that technology really means. And you're helping us understand that. So, those and, and and what I'm realizing is what stories in AI is also building a community of those 
you know, really, you know, energetic, young, hungry folks who want to contribute. I mean, we just have to give them the right direction. Say, here is where you actually, you get to point them to. This is the problem you solve. This is how you make the biggest impact with your life and for humanity. And it's just, I think the, the like, you know, going back to the first comments you made, we live in such amazing times and, you know, it has never been uh, so easy to get the word out, which is also causing the, the, the challenges around like fake news and stuff. But it really is an amazing time where you have a lot of those foundational, fundamental things is already there. And you just have this wide canvas that you can just paint the, 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 the portrait of your life and, and uh, for the benefit of humanity, right? So pretty amazing. Uh, thanks for, I, I love those, that, you know, what should governments do? Wish I can take that. I'll take that as a segment, send it to government leaders that I know and say, <laughs> watch this. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and I, I, I like this connection, our conversation, I, since we have a common tendency towards poetry, but I love the way that you put that, this canvas that exists, that we are all co-creating and co-drawing on. And we get to make some real choices about what our future looks like. Yes. And that comes with an immense yes. responsibility as well, right? Yeah, no, absolutely, Vilas. Now, one last question for you. Um, what worries you? Yeah. We're in this point, we're actually doing a lot of things. It's a lot of optimism around and stuff. But what's that doomsday scenario? Yeah. Yeah, and I'll tell you, and I'll be quite blunt with you. For me, the doomsday scenario isn't a technology question. It's not, it, there are a lot of things we need to think about, AI and warfare and weapons and all of this other stuff. But to me, the real doomsday scenario is one where we just give up our ability to make decisions about our shared future. When, and I say this often, right, there's a moment in time that we're approaching now where technology is doing two things at the same time. One is it's becoming so intimate. It's crawling down into your brainstem, as some folks say, right? It's getting to know you in ways that you might not know yourself. At the same time, it's becoming more and more alien. If you don't have a technological background, you don't really know how the pieces fit to create AI. And so this thing is happening, and I think it's important to note and to discuss and to really put in the crosshairs, is if we don't step forward and say we want to own our technology-enabled future, then decisions will be made for us in ways that aren't necessarily going to highlight our well-being. That's what scares me. And so what you're doing around stories and AI, these kinds of activities that take these decisions and make them accessible to populations across the world, I think is where we need to be focusing. We should be spending our time and making sure that these stories are universal, that they're held by all of us, and that we build mechanisms and feedback loops so that people can express their political agency around technological issues. I think there's a path forward, but we have to be careful about it. It's the, you know, what what a beautiful way, um, you know, to, to wrap up the conversation too. But uh, I love the way you said it, like, you know, the only... The, the doomsday scenario that you worry about, and I think that's something everybody should be worrying about, is we're losing our agency to make those decisions for a shared society, right? We're just giving up, right? I think, uh, um, and and which the optimist in me and looking and say, that's a solvable problem, right? That you can solve by making sure that you're creating incentives, motivations, uh, habits, and systems to go make this happen. Because you are doing an incredible amount of work in this field. And, and I'm so grateful to have known you and, you know, to, to be in this journey. And um, 
uh, I can't wait to see what you know the foundation yourself and everybody you know the, the impact of this and it's already seen. I'm gonna I I took so much notes. I'm gonna go research. <laughs> I might actually come back with you a lot of these questions. It's just amazing stories and these are the stories we should be we should be talking about. I mean, they, they, you know, like I was just um, can, uh, candidly, I was looking at the impact of AI in the Ukraine war that's going on right now, right? And um, well, the good news is, you know, the good guys have the the AI technology more than the bad guys. But that, you know, we can't really say that because of the hackers and stuff in Russia, but the, the one side is using, you know, AI powered drones to actually identify targets and destroy them and stuff. But this could easily be anybody who can build this technology. That's the other problem, right? Whereas this, if you don't have the guardrails, you don't have the systems, you don't have the governance mechanism to go do it, and you don't participate as an individual, as a civil society member in that journey, then you know somebody else is gonna make decisions for you. It's gonna be like um, like anything else that has happened bad in history, right? So um, yeah, no, amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for spending this time. It was a delight. I love the conversation. And as you said, this should be the start of many, right? And um, I'm totally open. And I hope uh, those who listen to this and see it, if they want to follow up and talk about this, you can tell how passionate I am about it. Always happy to do so. You are. You're amazingly passionate on this. Vilas, how can the people find you on the internet? Where can they, you know, um, what are your coordinates? Yeah, I think I think Twitter is certainly a great place, at Velasdar and at PJMFND, the, the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation, where we share stories of the incredible work our partners are doing to use AI to make the world a better place. That's a great starting point. We'll go from there. Amazing. Willas, thanks so much for taking the time today. This was a fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.